David A. Price presents... folks welcome to marvel noise episode 421 our halloween show i'm your host steve raker like grandpa monster down in the comic book bunker reading forgotten texts fending off interdimensional breaches into our reality and sometimes playing darts marvel noise is well it's usually a semi-monthly podcast but this month between some technical and scheduling issues this halloween special is your marvel noise for this month next month we're going to try to streamline our planning production and predictability by alternating recent read episodes with our features so we can release one of each every month and as always we'll be sponsored by nobody we do give fealty and thanks to our one-man council of reeds, Derek Coward, our fifth beetle in the shadows, making what we do possible thanks to his deliberate noise network and feature long-running show comic book noise. Also, look for the new Halloween episode of Indie Comic Book Noise, where Andrew, Kevin, Phil, and I talk indie books. It's not just a Halloween episode, but also our 10-year anniversary doing that show, which is hard to believe even for a true believer like myself. Also, check out MarvelNoise.com for access to episodes past and present, thanks to a handy little calendar-style drop-down menu. We'll get to our feature segment in a Marvel minute, but first, it's customary for the host of this here podcast to recommend her book or two during the intro, so I'm going to take this opportunity to check in on the current status of the horror genre in the Marvel U. I feel like Marvel currently has three, maybe four, ongoing horror titles. The Maybe book is the current Moon Knight series, written by Jed McKay, with Spectre having set up his Moon Knight operations in an inner-city mission house for the poor, operating at night, uh, allowing sanctuary from evils, but also solutions. He's like the A-Team or the Equalizer. Got a problem? He's crossed paths with vampires a few times. The Zodiac, Vermin, Waxman, Zombies, Morpheus, Cults, Covens, even the House of Shadows. It's been a great book, even well executing the otherwise cheesy idea that there's a second dark fist of Khonshu, in contrast to Moon Knight's silver-white motif. Eh, believe me, it actually ends up working. The action and tone are entertainingly conveyed by artists Alessandro Capuccio and Federico Sabatini. Plus, there's Tigra. It's really one of Marvel's best titles in its current publishing stable. A title you can usually count on for at least some horror story arcs is the Ghost Rider. And the current Benjamin Percy written Ghost Rider book is full of creepy visuals and horror elements, but I'm really not digging it. To me, it feels like Johnny Blaze and the Rider are secondary characters to this mystic shield agent gone rogue with the tats and the piercings. 
this character that they've introduced here. Uh, the, the story was hers parallel to his, but you knew they were going to eventually collide and merge. And the book, for me at least, didn't improve. It, it's, I, I don't like any of the characters, including the portrayal of Johnny. So, enough said. But we here at Marvel Noise really, really dug the Immortal Hulk series written by Al Ewing. There were lots of horror elements, from visuals to situations to transformations. It was a superb book. The Hulk title that followed it, the last Hulk book, with the Ryan Otley art and Bruce Banner piloting the Hulk from like a command bridge like it was some kind of giant mech it was interesting and allowed for some wild visuals but it wasn't at all a horror book it was a decent palate cleanser from Ewing stuff and now having horror elements reinserted to the hulk's new title is actually a really welcome return it's not being derivative at all but returning to that creepy vibe so the new Incredible Hulk title, which is maybe five issues in, is written by my pal and yours, Philip Kennedy Johnson, and has Banner and the Hulk on the run in the Deep South. The Hulk is being hunted by monsters from around the world, and I mean colossal, yet usually hidden ones, but big, big ones. The Hulk has this runaway teen girl as his Rick Jones for the series, and so far, their lot is thrown together against zombies, a predator in the Man-Thing swamp, and these giant boss monsters. It's interesting, it's entertaining, and the art so far has been by Nick Klein and Travel Foreman. The other ongoing Marvel title I'd put into the horror genre category is a bit of a surprise, I suppose. It's the current Guardians of the Galaxy series, written by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing, with art by Kev Walker, whose work on Guardians Kevin and I loved back in the day. This series, well, the structure of it makes it kind of seem like a what if, because we pick up on the Guardians in a a state after something big happened that happened in between series. They're reeling from like the worst day of their lives, but they won't talk about it. So we just get reintroduced to these versions of these characters that are familiar yet a little bit different. Like Rocket's not with the team and he's got a cybernetic eye. Nebula is officially part of the team. And they're chasing these Groot fall events which are horrific. Groot's like a cosmic scale slasher, all ghost ridery with this flaming mow, these giant heads floating through space. Because remember, Groot was a horror suspense sci-fi monster before he was a lovable little potted plant. They're out in the frontier planets, Star-Lord's wearing a cowboy hat, so there's this kind of uh, remote Western element. It's really a great book, and truly horror on a cosmic scale. 
All right, that's four ongoings. But wait, there's more. For the 2023 Halloween season, Marvel's released a Cap Wolf limited series, Cap Wolf and the Howling Commandos, which is a what-if story, placing the idea of a werewolf Captain America into a World War II setting. So it's Cap Wolf fighting Nazis alongside Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos. But, you know, keeping the idea of Cap Wolf alive, they're going to make a figure and everything. Can't have it be, you know, 30 years since we had <laughs> Cap Wolf <laughs> last manifest. And lastly, Marvel has also published a one-shot of Halloween-appropriate tales, The Crypt of Shadows, this year. With a cover by Linneal Yu, this anthology features four stories threaded together by an Al Ewing-written framing sequence featuring Doctor Strange's vampire brother trapped in a mystic mirror, kind of as our Uncle Creepy-like host. There's a Scarlet Witch story written by her series writer, Steve Orlando, where she faces, I thought, a pretty unique and clever threat of the bricklayer. Kind of a perfect adversary for her. There's a reluctant team-up between Deadpool and the Living Mummy that I really thoroughly enjoyed with really nice art by Dumalia Pramanek. There's a Declan Shalvey-written encounter between Daredevil, the Man-Thing, and a bunch of ninjas. Woohoo, ninja fodder. And a short bit with the werewolf Hulk and Craven that, you know, had some action, but, I mean, it was adequate. All in all, a good read and uh, maybe a preview of some trouble coming to Doctor Strange's way in his book. So there you go. Four ongoings and two specials. I'm warmed up. You're warmed up. It's time for me to conjure forth WWX Kevin and Andrew the L.A. Rabbit. Don't break the circle. All right, Kevin is here and Andrew is here. And for our Halloween fun, we chose to delve into a series that uh, none of us had read. Uh, it ended just as I was starting to read comics uh, in 74-75. And that is The Monster of Frankenstein. And I have to thank our old pal from the old Marvel Noise 11 o'clock comics boards, Dallin, for uh, not that long ago uh, tweeting about having purchased and read back issues of this series and how much he enjoyed it. And I thought to myself, you know, I really have never read it. I mean, I know the story of Frankenstein. I've read Frankenstein, but uh, this seemed like a great opportunity. So I'm glad you guys took the baton and were willing to run this relay with me. Yeah, it, it was fun. I mean, it's a real roller coaster of a ride from my perspective. I liked a lot of it. A lot of it was a bit of a, I would not spoiler. You can probably skip the first issue. <laughs> Some of these, Cause I didn't feel like we've all read about a million like adaptions because of the 
public domain <laughs> nature and the cheapness of comics. I must have read a bunch of a million different, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula and that type of stuff in comic book form. But once it gets into like, let's do weird Marvel stuff, I'm like, sign me up. I was waiting for him to join the Avengers. <laughs> New Avengers, Kevin. New Avengers. <laughs> or what What was that X-Men team that Neil Adams had? Maybe you can join that one. The like before. Yeah. Uh, yeah like before the 1950s X-Men one. Or, yeah. <laughs> what did they call it? X Men nineteen fifty five or something wasn't it just something as simple as that? I don't think anyone remembers it anymore, for a good reason. So the Monster of Frankenstein ran eighteen issues from October nineteen seventy two to June of nineteen seventy five. The first twelve issues take place in eighteen ninety eight in the turn of the century, although they. Uh, do flashbacks as the book does back to the 1700s the end of the 17th century there and then issues 13 and 18 bring us into the present or the present then 1974 and like andrew said the first issues adapt the book the first four issues in fact adapt shelley's book and i initially i mean the initial Frankenstein novel is it's not what you expect when you first read it because you're used to the whole universal monster thing. Right. And for me, it wasn't until I was a almost teenager and bought the Bernie Wrightson Frankenstein Marvel graphic novel with his plates accompanying Shelley Wollstonecraft's um, prose that I said, you know what, I should read this thing just so I can go through and really um, be able to appreciate Wrightson's, you know, the, the pieces that Wrightson pulled from it and, and the imagery and stuff. And oh, my gosh, I wasn't expecting it to be what, like they say, it's the first science fiction novel ever. So I think it's cool to have it in comic form because I, I mean, now maybe it's been done a jillion times, but I don't know at that time if it had ever gotten a proper uh, Classics Illustrated or anything like that. Yeah, Classics Illustrated. My nemesis <laughs> as a child. People trying to educate me. I am impossible to learn. But come on, issue two, Stevie fights a bear. Like a, <laughs> a bear. Kevin can tell you, bears are large, and you should not fight them, even if you're made out of the corpse of criminals. <laughs> so, like we said, the first four issues adapt the novel, and the it's written by Gary Friedrich, uh, you know, adapting Wollstonecraft Shelley with pencils, inks and colors at the beginning, at least by Mike Plug. And Gary Friedrich isn't the Mike Friedrich from Star Reach. Gary's the one who co-created the Ghost Rider also with Mike Plug. And fun fact, uh, Mike and Gary Friedrich are not related. I was enjoying uh, I'm reading these on the unlimited, so. The yeah. colors, they're having a lot of fun. I like that it's a bit outrageous. You know, like some of the scenes at sea, the water's like a greenish, cool color, and they sort of shift around. Lots of, just t- every panel, even though you'd think, oh man, it's going to be Frankenstein. A lot of like dark grays and all the stuff in the Arctic, it's just going to be white. But no, they're smart to mix in loads of different colors. And I really appreciate, like take the, kind of over the top nature of it 
mix it with comics and like if you were gonna do black and white that's one thing but if you're gonna have color have color and i love the logo and the corner symbol even like the just the marvel comics touches uh, you know on this material like the cover of issue one is so plugy too like and and even the effort to include a version of like the classic it's alive line right <laughs> right on the cover is, is fun John Buscema drew the initial design of the monster that Plug followed, which is funny because Buscema would later pencil a bunch of issues on the series. And Big John's um, uh, credo was that to make him look visually different than the Karloff Universal version. And I think they certainly managed there. They do move things fast enough along, though, I think, even though it takes four issues to do the book because there's so much of the book that is a character telling what happened in their past, whether it be the sailor or the monster or whatever, that it jumps around a lot on you. It's pretty wordy. (laughs) I mean, I guess if you're adapting something, I'm like, I guess I can't blame you for the first few issues of being wordy. Well, I mean, they have all the, there's a lot of, wacky turns in this thing it's hard to be like oh it's a modest funny little thing it's really like every strange creature and weird tribes and new monster like it it just has all these things and you're like it moves four issues and you've gone all over the world found these secret tribes of prehistoric guys and everything yeah it was really fun i thought that's what's so cool is the monster has so many um, experiences that forge his who he is, which is his question all along. Who am I? Right. But he's had so like, who are you? You're a, in some ways you're a collection of the experiences you have. And he's had so many different. He's like a Conan. Right. He's had like his thief, his murderer time, his, you know, with the tribe, with the Eskimos, with the wolves, with the uh in the laboratories, uh, in the libraries, on the prairie. Um, but it starts off in 1898 where an explorer, Walton, charters a vessel to the Arctic and they find the Frankenstein monster perfectly preserved in ice. The crew's reluctant, but Walton has them loaded onto the ship and talk of mutiny starts over it. And Walton tells a young deckhand the history of the monster as he knows it, that a hundred years prior in 1788, Victor Frankenstein creates the monster in his lab. It runs off, gets smart, returns and frames a family servant for the murder of Victor's little brother. And she's put to death over it. And he's just like a in the shadows manipulating thing. So right at the beginning, right at, you know, you get the initial thing of the monster being the b- gar uh, and then. When he's next encountered, he's like a scheming, manipulative um, uh, uh, adversary. Victor suspects that the monster is involved and at fault and goes looking for it, but it finds him. And it tells him how he, you know, he had to kill a bear and became <laughs> a secret, secret benefactor for a blind guy until his family chased him away and all this which I keep thinking of Gene Hackman in Young Frankenstein as the blind guy. He pours the soup on his lap. Whoa! <laughs> but 
the monster forces Frankenstein to create him a mate. Right. We, I mean, we've seen that in the Universal monster movies, but it wasn't like that at all. He wanted a mate because there was nobody like him. He even kills women to provide fresh parts, which Frankenstein is horrified by when he realizes. But he does the grim task. And once it's done, he realizes, oh, my God, this is like now I've created two monstrosities and he kills the bride. So the monster kills Victor's wife on their wedding night along with his best friend and uh, Victor's framed for it and goes to jail for a while. It's heavy stuff. It's like, I like how the Frank, the monster is uh, reminds me of those like English hard men. Like not that he's like when he says something or does something like, I'm going to haunt you forever. I'm going to do whatever. There is nothing that stops him. Like he doesn't go get distracted or anything. He's like when he puts his mind that formidable will, I think, is the thing I like most about this Frankenstein. I mean, sometimes it's put to evil purposes, but he puts his mind to something and there's no stopping him. I like this planning, cunning, agile Frankenstein the best, too, which is why I am taking the time to touch upon this stuff because i mean it's cool to th- I, I think of that bernie wrightson plate with frankenstein like leaping on uh, over the edge of the cliff down onto this other ledge and and, and i should say the monster is doing that and frankenstein's thinking oh my gosh this thing's moving with like cat-like swiftness that i, I think that's cool the uh crew in 1898 revolt they were talking mutiny and a fire thaws the monster out who gets revived and he grabs the young deckhand and climbs to the top of the main masts and that allows for all kinds of great visuals the ship hits an iceberg is sunk and frankenstein walton the explorer and uh the deckhand kid and another crew member are the only survivors on a lifeboat they make land and the monster who Hey, he's pretty good at making a campfire. Like this isn't your dad's universal Frankenstein who can't stand fire. He can run like right into flames to pull somebody out and save somebody or uh, make a make a nice hot fire from nothing. Is he is he reading a Watchmen comic though? <laughs> I'm just saying a bear, Steve. Like I don't know how <laughs> I can't get over how rid- what. What about making the dead parts together makes him superhuman <laughs> strong to the extent that he can just lightning, especially he's starving and lightning he just made him houses strong. him like I get the wolves. OK, they're just dogs, jumped up dogs, but a bear. <laughs> yeah, I've seen a bear knock an engine block to the floor of a car <laughs> with one hit on the hood of the front of a car in the Canadian Rockies on the side of the road. Um Car got close and honked, and the bear swiped one arm down on the hood of that little VW. Man. Actually, it was actually VW, so. Major is a little drunk that day. <laughs> so um, the rest of the story around the fire gets shared with Frankenstein hunting the monster down and confronting it in the Arctic, only to nearly die, and he gets saved by a ship with Walton's ancestor, being the captain, which is the whole connection and how Walton knew about him and where his whereabouts was and everything and why he came to seek him out. The monster stows away on the vessel and confronts the 
captain, but Victor had already died. Wah, wah. So he wanders, joins a primitive Eskimo-like tribe, learns to hunt and cook, and learns war when they're um, uh, slaughtered by attacking Huns. These fight scenes look so cool, too. And having learned, like, the importance of ritual, the monster buries the tribe chieftain on a funeral pyre that causes an ice break that submerges and freezes the monster for almost a century until the current Walton's expedition freed it. So now back in 1898, the crewman, boy, and Walton, they all die of exposure. But Walton tells him there's a descendant of Victor Frankenstein living near the castle. So now the monster has a quest to carry him forward. So issue five by uh, Friedrich Plug and John Verporten has the monster sailing away. And on his journey, he comes across a crucified woman burning at the stake in Scandinavia, whom he rescues. And I like how now they're like the okay, we, we stuck through the book. Now we're just going to get nutty with every crazy yeah, monster. This is where now we wanted to be. Into the 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 uh, universal monster movies. We're going to have them fight the invisible man, the creature from the Black Lagoon, whoever we got. Who do we got the rights to, Steve? I like at least now it's still that Frankenstein story continued. Right? Yeah, they yeah. haven't they haven't messed with him yet. So he. He can be fooled, but he also cares enough to get involved in things. And he saves this girl from like, again, the fire doesn't, you know, no, no fire must get away. He rushes in. He saves her from from the stake and, you know, tries to bring her into town. But everyone wants this girl dead, including her father, who is this like warrior huntsman dude. It all has an O. Henry ending where she's a werewolf. And no <laughs> wonder course. they all wanted her dead, and uh, he should have left her dead. And werewolf, wear a castle, wear a castle. <laughs> yeah, it was fun though. But you, I like that they threw a fight scene between Frankenstein and a werewolf. Not the wolf form; it's more wolf man form. Like I always get confused with that. Like technically, a werewolf yeah. is a guy that turns into a wolf, not a guy that turns into a wolf man. But right. a lot of times. We're interchangeably used. I know I've interchangeably used them, but I want this to be clear. This is a full-on wolf woman, not a <laughs> werewolf woman. But she oh. looks pretty good as a woman and pretty killer as a werewolf woman. Oh, woman. That's the correct plural. Wolf woman? Woman wolf? Anyway, she's like a hairy, you know, arms and legs not on all fours type hey, of this, thing. Hey, this is the 70s. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> this, is the, this is still the 1898. Never mind. <laughs> the title changes to The Frankenstein Monster with issue number six, which is also Mike Plug's last issue, but Friedrich is still writing. I There's love... along came a spider, and I'm like, Spider-Man already? <laughs> it didn't take long. I love this Plug Romita Sr. cover, though, with the monster chained to the, the wall and the night in blue with the red cape attacking her inside is pretty lots of super great detail but i do tire of every single person that uh the monster runs into just freaks out (laughs) (laughs) what a horrible town to live what if you're just the town you know the leper with a 
giant goiter problem and not enough iodine, Steve, or what would yeah. you just get attacked instantly too? Yeah. Hulk just wants to be left alone. Uh, mon- yeah, definitely Hulk vibes. The monster makes it to Castle Frankenstein just as this young militia lieutenant also arrives who's investigating some suspected shenanigans that his superior, Colonel Blackstone, seems to be whitewashing. That's covering up for for you, yeah. DC DC readers. Hey, Steve, you know, the DC readers are all over. This has a bondage cover. They love that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) The monster knocks this lieutenant out and continues on inside. He doesn't find any air of Frankenstein, but this weird cult serve serving this giant soul eating spider. It's like an issue of Conan or something. Yeah, that's for sure. Got some Prince Valiant vibes earlier. Some Conan vibes. Well, you got to like the non-licensed IP monster. They can have him. <laughs> Dang it, we can't afford to use any of these new modern monsters. How about a giant spider? Yeah, yeah we can do that, boss. And the lieutenant ra- arrives on scene and learns that Colonel Blackstone, who's Merlot, I love, by the way, uh, is behind it all. And Yeah, you- I mean, you find a giant spider that can turn people into soldiers for you, Steve. You're not going to squander it. So we get the monster fighting the giant spider, you know, and the castle gets flooded. Everyone dies, except the lieutenant who got out of there just in time. And the monster who continues his quest to find the last Frankenstein. Oh, I thought he had to find another crossover. <laughs> In issues seven to nine, which now we have uh, John Buscema providing art, we have the monster saving a gypsy girl who's being attacked in a Bavarian town, rendered so well. I mean, she's so beautiful because uh, Buscema can draw so awesomely, and the monster looks so cool, and the use of the trees to make the shadows and the woods and the whole landscape and everything and the gypsies. And it's like, Oh man, John Buscema. You know, the instructor was John Buscema. Okay. We need a pretty girl on the first page. People (laughs) are tired of looking at Frank's ugly mug. So we'll correct that right away. But I like how he finds, it's just we like every time he finds a crew, like they always turn on him at some point. So <laughs> I, I don't doubt his cynicism. I mean, I'd have it too. Everybody's sure. not treating him well. We could all learn a thing or two. <laughs> but so after he saves this gypsy girl, he gets welcomed into their traveling camp uh, pretty much by their elderly witchy woman. And she says that she knows where the last Frankenstein is. But then as time goes on, she kind of moves the goalposts and then says, well, he's dead. But she knows where his tomb is in Transylvania. Yeah, in case he wants to do anything to it to show his final thoughts on the Frankenstein family. So they travel to it and they recover the tomb and the monster pops it open. And yep, you guessed it. He was suckered. Dracula, Dracula lives. lives. Yeah. <laughs> <Woo-hoo>. <laughs> so they fight in issue eight and it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, come on, Dracula and Marvel. Like we know these are, you know, he has a whole series. They invent blade. He fights the X-Men like Dracula is a classic 
thing. I mean, I kept waiting for Frankenstein to have to find the Montessi formula and recite it and everything, but I guess they decided to just go fisticuff style. The gypsy girl Carmen tries to help the monster, but her elder Marguerite fights her off and Marguerite gets staked and revealed to be a vampire. Well, a, a dead one now, at least. But so Carmen is in this gypsy band that is a front for vampires who have infiltrated it. And when they go town to town, they feed. Yeah, you think she'd not have a lot of problem with Igor, you know, when you get right down to it from her previous introduction. But I guess she was just being polite and let Frank take the take the heat for it. The townspeople have connected the dots of murders were whenever the gypsies are in town. And since they're in town, they slaughter the entire gypsy caravan and Carmen and the monster find them. And the monsters like humans suck. Yeah. Well, I also like how uh, you talk about how, yeah, they wanted to get away from universal, but they gave them that goofy, like fur, not really a vest, but kind of vest-like fur thing that we all think of Frankenstein with, where you're like, what is that piece of clothing? It's like a sleeveless jacket made of fur. But isn't that isn't that from um, Shelley's novel description of him having the animal fur? But also, I think that's from the comics that's been used a lot, because in the movies, he's wearing like a suit coat, isn't he? I thought he at some point this, but maybe he, maybe it was from the comics, but I do like the fur and the blue jeans are like a classic seventies look for him. <laughs> blue jeans and a belt. <laughs> and a purple shirt in lieu of Hulk's purple pants. But even though the townspeople murdered the gypsy clan, uh, the murders continue because Dracula's on the loose, but it's slim pickings because they're, like people's guard is up, right? But he manages a few, including Carmen. Well, the townspeople form a mob to go after Dracula and the monster, but the monster finds them first and totally calls them out and takes them on, you know, for the gypsies. And his fight against the townsfolk is going pretty good until someone shoots him in the head. And then they bind him and burn him at the stake. Of course. That's the that's the townspeople move. That's what you do. You have an angry mob. You have your pitchforks and everything. And then you, you tie someone to a stake. Well, they're not going to burn the guy, Steve. I mean, they got to burn him. They can't hang him because we don't know if he breathes or nothing. So that would have been funny if they tried to hang him, though. Yeah. And like the whole scaffolding breaks and everything. Yeah. Dracula takes advantage of the townspeople all being, you know, uh, a a mob in the town square burning the monster and strikes again. And when they hear the screams, the mob head towards the sound. And while the monster is alone, he manages to break free. Then he points out to the mob, you know, what idiots they are, because he wants to kill Dracula, too, if they would just get out of his way. (laughs) <laughs> and they do yeah he's a lot more badass than they are they're a bunch of chundering fools i do lo- always love though when the comics know that 
they're the superior visual medium, so they can transform Dracula into fog and bats and dogs yeah, and yeah. cats and whatever they want. So there's always lots of fun where he's like, yeah, come and get me, and then he turns into something else. Always love that bit with Dracula. The monster encounters Carmen on his way to seeing Dracula, and we know she got bit, so, yep, she's a vamp. Sigh. Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego, Steve? But what's worse, she gets her fangs into the monster and does damage to his vocal cords, and now he can no longer speak, which brings him a little closer on the spectrum towards the universal version and And takes away one of the coolest things about the real version of the monster How to me. If that's true, couldn't they just drink from corpses or what? Like his blood isn't (laughs) like it's from dead people. That's the part where I was like, well, I guess it it all tastes the same. It doesn't say she's satisfied, (laughs) but I thought it was fun because he still has his. So now we get into that 70s, like we're just going to be in the head of Frankenstein kind of, you know, now you're Frankenstein and we're in his head and your head and do that kind of running monologue, but he can't express himself because he doesn't know sign language. Yeah. So after staking Carmen, he fights Dracula in a cave and bests him with a primitive cross and daybreak happening and then stakes him while in the cave. It's like a trifecta, right? The cross, the daybreak and a stake. Yeah, well, they promised someone was going to die. And I'm like, wow, they weren't kidding. (laughs) I can see that coming. I'm like, Dracula wins. I mean, Frank. Frank and Castle. That's the last. (laughs) That's the last we saw of Dracula. Well, what's so cool is that dead for good (laughs) in Tomb of Dracula number two. It's consistent with how they describe Dracula was awoken because he had the stake through him, his skeleton in the cave. So this this leaves him consistent with the continuity of Tomb of Dracula, which is kind of cool. So this took place at the turn of the century between Stoker's novel and the Bronze Age Tomb of Dracula series. This was a an awakening in between, which was a really cool thing way to do it. Yeah, Dracula, he's the ultimate and doesn't age, doesn't whatever. You can kill him off. You can bring him back. You can do whatever you want to him. And he's perfectly fine. And if he doesn't mention it, oh, well, he's fought. How many? Got Van Helsing, Dr. Sun, Frankenstein. He's got a (laughs) list of X-Men. He's got a list of enemies miles long. Like, you can't expect him to be constantly going, hey, whatever happened to whatever. And also... I always liked that Marvel usually made him pretty driven by his hunger. Mm. So half his problem is trying to figure out how to eat enough people to stay fit, you know. Or is he just a lush? <laughs> that could be. He gets uh, Well, I do notice he is like, picky like, about who he picks. He likes to keep his cheeks rosy. Uh, the arc ends in issue nine with a dude showing up in a cave. The next moment, claiming to be Vincent Frankenstein. I hear you've been looking for me. Yeah, I'm not sure how he heard that, but sure, why not? (laughs) (laughs) Issues 10 and 11 were the last ones penned by writer Gary Friedrich, with Big John providing his last pencils in issue 10, and the much less impressive art team of Bob Brown and Vinnie Coletta in issue 11. There's an awesome Gil Kane John Romita cover on issue 10, though. 
well, this Vincent Frankenstein guy, he doesn't immediately die at Frankenstein's hand showing up like that because he brought muscle with him. He's got Ivan, the giant hunchback. Yeah, man, these guys run into have run with the craziest crew. Like, how come he isn't being constantly attacked? He looks more monstrous than Frankenstein's monster does. Well, yeah, well, yeah, that's why. Yeah, that's going to play into it, actually. And he's Um, also dumber than Frank. Part of the I do like now that everyone's like it's total cap in the super soldier serum. Like no one can get it right. This one dude figured out a long time ago and a hundred years go by and they still can't figure out what that, you know, 11th herb and spices they put into the formula. Yeah, the secret sauce. Frankenstein wants to continue his ancestors experiments. And with his help, the monster's brain could be transplanted into a normal body. Psych. So in his London townhouse laboratory, while on the operating operating table, the monster has second thoughts and he tries to fight his way out. But between the sedatives and Ivan, he's helpless but to be prepared for surgery. Hey, we've all had second doubts about things, Steve. Sometimes you, maybe I shouldn't have gotten the atomic hot wings. <laughs> usually they're not strapping you down to eat those things. You're not supposed to eat the bone, Andrew. <laughs> well, I usually try and go like half hot, half hot. I was getting nervous when it's like the the bottom level is always something like nuclear blow out your taste buds or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I think that's too hot for me. I don't need the ghost reaper pepper drenched <laughs> thing. You know? I want to be able to eat food again and not suffer too much when i process the chicken wings the other way either just before the first incision ivan realizes that while he's being done a solid because frankenstein's intention is to put his brain into frankenstein's monster's body because like you said andrew actually ivan is more horrendous than frankenstein so the the frankenstein monster's body is a preferable to Ivan's state. So that's what the doc is planning to do here. But he just, I mean, that's one way to fix a hunchback, I suppose. Yeah. It's just a shame that it's weird. He wants the dumber brain. Yeah. Well, it's for Ivan, I guess. Um, But Ivan realizes that the monster's brain is just going to be discarded then. And that's not cool with him. So he turns on Vincent. Except they get interrupted by the family servant, Betty. Vincent's wife, Lenore, is very ill. She's dying. So Ivan, you know, always liked Lenore. So he lets him go to her briefly. And yep, she's dying. And while he's gone, the monster awakens and he and Ivan start fighting in the castle laboratory. Wait a minute, castle? Yeah, last issue, it was a lab in Vincent's London townhouse, but with the art team change, now it's a hillside castle. <laughs> it next was just, thing you're going to tell me carnage shows up. It was uh, <laughs> just some clever wallpaper and uh, furniture arrangement, Steve. You could do a lot with uh, sconces. <laughs> Vincent returns down to the lab and, and shoots them both. The monster and Ivan kills Ivan, but it only weakens the monster. 
then Vincent tries to return to his wife, but Betty the maid is waiting for him and shoots him dead. She's dead. You should have been there. Now you're dead, too. Wow. Well, you could tell Betty was a little nutty because she's not attractive. <laughs> That's always the clue, Steve. <laughs> the, 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 the key guide to 70s comics. If they're pretty hideous, they're probably a bad person. So the monster lumbers off, kind of bummed that he didn't get to kill Vincent himself. And the arc ends back at the castle with Betty revealing Vincent's wife died in childbirth. Vincent had no idea, but there's another Frankenstein heir. Got to keep the name alive, Steve. We can't be letting this valuable IP go to waste. So, So this baby is Basil Frankenstein, who later appears all grown up, having made his own monster successfully in Castle Frankenstein in the 1940s for the Nazis. And he appears in Invaders 31 in May 1978, written by Don Glute, with art by Chick Stone and a young Bill Black. Uh, But Basil and his monster both die in that issue. By the monster's hand, he grabs Basil and they go plummeting off of a cliff to their doom. June 1974's issue number 12 sports a great Ron Wilson, Ernie Chan, or Chua, cover. And we get a new creative team of writer Doug Munch and penciler Val Mayrick with the last of the Coletta inked issues, too, here. I like Val Merrick's art a lot. This is early work for him, but he'd later uh, do some work on Howard the Duck and Man-Thing and Conan. And he did the Void Indigo Marvel graphic novel and uh, epic comic series that followed and some stuff for Bruce Jones and Twisted Tales. Always like Val Merrick. Yeah, yeah. I always think of Howard the Duck, personally. But this one... Man, this reminded me of those weird 80s independent comics where, like, a thousand things happen on and off panel, (laughs) and it really hurts your brain. You're like, I'm pretty sure there's, like, 50 pages missing out of this comic. Yeah, there's a a reason for this. This is is a big transition issue. It starts with the wounded monster wandering away from the castle in, you know, 1899, fighting some wolves. (laughs) Like you do. And he already did that, Steve. Get a new act. That always looks cool, though. We didn't get to see Val Merrick draw it. Yeah, but he can fight Wolverines or something. You know, mix (laughs) it up. He's got a bear and wolf already under his thing. Maybe he fights a giant moose. Those things are pretty monstrous. But it's just a mechanism for him to get caught in another ice fall, and he gets frozen for another almost century, being discovered in 1974 by a shipping vessel and brought to the USA. Oh, I right. thought it was Captain America again. As a yeah, I was going to say this guy gets frozen more than Cap. So now we're in the set. Now we're in finally in present time. Now fifty years ago, but so someone gets some ideas though, and the frozen body gets stolen and sold and put on display at a carnival freak show, where a fire later revives him, as is detailed in the black and white Monsters Unleashed Marvel magazine. Frankenstein monster serial. Yeah, that felt like a real cop out to me, Steve. To drop all this stuff that's more important to how we get. Just have them 
jump right to the modern time. And while I'm complaining, I thought all that stuff at carnivals was fake, Steve. You're telling <laughs> me I, I saw a real alien and <laughs> real th- Dracula parts and everything? I think, I think that that serial was a test for doing some storytelling of the monster in present time while the other series was happening. And when they decided to go with it, they decided to incorporate it and make it canon and refer to it and use it as part of the awakening. Um, Just my theory though. Um, But this transition issue, because he uh, wanders away from this, freak show carnival it also allows continuity wise for the monsters other appearances like as part of kang's legion of the unliving in avengers 138 that we talked about when we did the celestial madonna stuff and he had an appearance in giant size werewolf by night number two and the all of that happened the previous fall in 1973 so while the the frankenstein monster comic itself was still in the 1800s there were these other appearances that were happening in our time and now they've been absorbed by the title all in this issue making for a really chunky issue but it's the new creative team everything's just being switched they're rearranging the deck chairs on the queen mary and uh it's full speed ahead Hmm. glad you said the queen mary i would have Perhaps selected another famous vessel, Steve. <laughs> like the Lusitania? <laughs> Remember thir- the main, Steve. Remember the main. Issues 13 to 15 have Munch and Mayrick joined by inkers Jack Abel, Dan Green, who recently passed away, and Klaus Jansen. The monster still can't talk, so he's really become universal-like to me. But we get through his... Now seemingly simple eyes, encounters with, you know, all the modern dangers, street gangs, baggage handlers at LaGuardia. Oh, come on, Steve. He gets to meet Ralph Cocaine. Finally, a (laughs) decent character in this strip. A guy with a name like that, Steve, you know he's got to be a bad dude. And he's a gang member? Come on. A young man he saves from a gang beating Billy is the son of a scientist who's trying to animate organic matter. And the monster befriends him and Billy takes him home. But the scientist's wife had sabotaged his stupid experiments and accidentally created the killer jigsaw monster. And the jigsaw monster has already killed Billy's father and kills Billy's mother right in front of them. And it hurts Billy. So the monster fights it, but it escapes. And the jigsaw monster, it, he evolves over the issue. I think his final form is the most interesting, where he's like a mishmash of different creatures, like the is, pig noses and everything. That part it, I liked when then rather than him being more amorphous. Is he evolved or is it just the different inkers each issue? <laughs> Dare you, Steve. Suggest that the continuity isn't completely perfect. It's great. I love it. Like I said, he's out there helping this poor kid. He knows what it's like to ha- lose a lot of your friends. I mean, admittedly, Frank sometimes kills them, but still, it's the same. Uh, at the end of the day, it's all the same. But I just like how he can just fight. Frank. That monster can fight anybody. Like this jigsaw thing, who cares? Just punch it in the face and throw it out the window. 
Billy's parents are dead and he realizes he's going to get blamed. So they split the scene and meet Eric Prawn, a private investigator who was hired to find Frankenstein's monster. They arrive at his apartment, which is being ransacked by a pair also looking for Frankenstein's monster. Steve, I thought there was a lost opportunity. This is the 70s and the kid's van does not have any cool painting on it. <laughs> no black light posters inside. <laughs> like, no, I'm I'm suspicious of him, Steve. What kind of kind of seventies guy has a van that's unpainted? The guy with the suit and the gun, codenamed Cardinal, explains that Prawn is employed by the last surviving Frankenstein who wants to clear the family ledger by killing the monster, but he works for this great organization with a way better idea. I want to put blood in their ledger. Yeah. <laughs> Then another uh, uh, dumb, muscly guy who makes yeah. a, who's dumber than Frankenstein. But then he tells the bald guy in the wife beater tank top, Xandor, to go kill Prawn. Wasn't Xandor in the Herculoids? <laughs> no, that Wasn't might that be Xandar. I'm not sure. The monster beats the crud out of Xandor until Cardinal puts a gun to Billy's head. And then they're all like, hey, where'd Prawn go? Billy and the monster are brought to the headquarters of ICON, the International Crime Organization's Nexus. Wait, I thought ICON was a DC property, Steve. Isn't that a milestone? I just no, love that's when a they. Imprint. I love when the bad guy organization wears its criminal activity like right on its sleeve, like yeah. that. Though. <laughs> they get cool cufflinks. Makes uh, f- filling out the paperwork so much easier when they're down filing their taxes, Steve. <laughs> There are synthetic bodies and stasis everywhere in this giant lab complex. They're out to build a synthetic army, and the secret to success lies in dissecting the monster's brain. Always. And then some pretty wacky cars are going to show up in this thing, Steve. (laughs) If you're a fan of interesting perspectives, you need to read this issue. (laughs) Just then, Prawn comes crashing in, guns a-blazing. But then, just then again, the Jigsaw monster bursts in, having tracked the monster's scent, and he attacks the monster wanting around two. We need to call him, like, Jiggy or something, Steve. He needs a cooler <laughs> name. So they get Jiggy and bring the complex down around them. Jiggy gets punched into the river, and I, I guess seemingly drowned. We don't ever see him again. The arc ends with Prawn holding Billy at gunpoint, telling the monster that they're now coming with him to meet his employer. Yeah. So uh, off to the Swiss Alps they go. This is very James Bond. He's in like a Rolls Royce. He yes. flies a plane. He's got a little like German pistol looking gun and everything and going to some secret organizations with agents everywhere. and For everything. Sure. This is like. A Frankenstein and the agents of shade. Ooh, wrong company. So how many times have we seen Frankenstein in other companies and more than just DC have like a secret organization agency type affiliation, even later on with like the howling commandos and things like that, where it's like, was that all started here? Was this the first time that they, anybody did that with Frankenstein tied him into international organizations and espionage? I, I wonder. My name's uh, Monster. Frankenstein's Monster. I, yeah. I love he, the... Because he had a lot of those adventures. What was what was it I read for the indie comic book noise where it was um, 
I can't even remember the company. It was like a 40s, 50s Frank type of thing where he went on the on all, all these wild adventures. He might have been part of something then. Hmm. Yeah. I totally love the cover of issue 16 by John Romita and Jack Abel with the monster standing knee deep in the snow, fending, fending off commandos on skis. It's really a neat image. Yeah, agents of Spectre. He's got him by the neck, Steve. (laughs) In issues 16 and 18, these last three issues, we get uh, Bob McCloud on inks over Mayrick on issues 16 and 17, and Mayrick's own inks on issue 18, where he's joined by new writer Bill Mantlo for what really wasn't planned to be the last issue. I mean, we get a new writer, there's a New direction, there's a next issue box and everything. What a cliffhanger. It's a fake out, Steve. <laughs> they knew all along this wasn't going to last, but this is where we meet the new uh, Frankenstein family member. I like how they're all, we're going to get a lot of Frankenstein family members. <laughs> yeah, out of we're, this, we're not done. We still got like three to go here. <laughs> Prawn brings them to a mountain compound in the Alps, and they're greeted by his employer, Veronica Frankenstein. And even Prawn is surprised that she's a she. What? A chick? (laughs) Plus the 70s. (laughs) Plus she's a scientist, and she says she doesn't want to hurt the monster, but she's there to help him. Yeah, she's got to balance the scales, like Kevin said, get some of that red out of her ledger. So, like you wanted, Steve, she's going to fix his voice. Uh, Well, thank God. (laughs) She offers to restore the vocal cords through surgery. And, and... The problem is her assistant betrays them to Icon, who attacks the the, the compound during the procedure. And yeah, I, I like how how disrespectful she is. You can see why the guy turned on her. Like he treats him, <laughs> and rightly so. Like obviously he's a heel, but and I do love her. She's the genius. I, like I can't be bothered, even though there's machine guns going off and everything. I got finished my surgery. <laughs> this is the important part. I, I mean, Prawn does what I think is a really, I, I mean, nothing short of amazing job defending the compound from the commandos on skis and such. But Cardinal and his partner Indigo from their helicopter command post bust out their secret weapon an Ultimo-like robot, the Berserker, Colossus of Destruction. Yeah, that name promises a lot more than the design team delivered on this one. It seemed <laughs> like we get, uh, what is that, that guy from Thunder Agents, <laughs> like, but without the flair in the design, like just a plain like robot body, like nothing. Couldn't give him a horn or, uh, I don't know, pockets or... A leather jacket, something. Steve, Kevin, add something to this guy. Spice him up a little. Spikes or chains. Yeah. Oh, wait, that would be 90s. <laughs> well, this thing just busts through the wall of the operating room and goes through Prone and Billy like a hot knife through butter. But before it can hurt Veronica, the monster leaps off the table and engages it. And they fight, but the monster prevails using exposed electrical cables to shock it into shutdown mode. 
and the gang calls him a hero and the monster's able to speak not hero but who am i because <laughs> you know frankenstein monster uh, a large appreciation and understanding of electricity steve from his time in the <laughs> well i feel like this is again moving him towards that more like carlos portrayal because i think they're kind of suggesting that since he's been reborn in the 70s he's been not only mute but he's been disoriented too like he's not he's not himself he's not the deep thinker that he was 100 years ago well, if he's disoriented, he should try and read 18, 19 of these issues. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here comes the weird stuff. <laughs> In issue 17, as the monster recovers, he gets pissed and wanders away from the compound. Meanwhile, Cardinal and Indigo have their man on the inside repair the berserker and start him up. And, and once this, he's, this guy is like a wealth of skills, by the way. Can I say, like, he can rewire a killer robot? Once activated, the berserker goes off after the monster. And they fight in the snow, and it's a pretty cool hand to hand combat until the monster rips its arm off and starts asking it some questions Can you feel pain? Are you alive? You know, what do you think of the local sports team? That kind of stuff. Wait, rips his arm off. Steve, this is a DC comic after all. Oh, yeah, it is Robot Man. <laughs> but the Berserker's all like, I don't know. Let's meditate on this for a while and not fight. And Indigo and the Cardinal guy can't believe it. They totally lost control of this thing. Yeah, it couldn't have been cheap, Steve. How much do you think that thing costs in uh, <laughs> 1970s dollars? In the last issue, 18, June 1975, new writer Bill Mantlo wraps things up and goes in a weird direction. But I do love the full Mayrick art. Yeah, yeah it looks good when they, they put him in a forest. Great, great uh, milieu for his artwork. At Veronica Frankenstein's compound, Veronica tends to an injured prawn while Billy sees her traitor assistant run outside to meet Indigo and Cardinal in their getaway helicopter. And he grabs Prawn's automatic rifle. And although he's never held a gun in his hand, he just shoots wildly at them and hits the gas tank and kills the assistant Indigo and Cardinal in the resulting explosion. Boom. And that's the last we see of Billy, Prawn, Veronica, or Icon. Wow. How about that? <laughs> it's like... Is right. Hey, those characters are waiting for the right writer, Steve. The right pitch. Here's your chance, people. Send your pitch into Marvel, what you're going to do with those guys. So cut to the monster and the berserker who have walked out of the mountains and down into the forest as allies, like looking for the meanings of their lives. And they encounter and are attacked by a bunch of these gnarled little forest folk. The lollipop oh, guild lays into them, yeah. Steve. <laughs> They're they're more brutal than the lollipop guild. They're, they're like homunculi, you know. They got muscles and shoulders and little clubs and stuff. I see one of us hasn't been beaten with oversized lollipops before. They ditch the robot, who we also never see again, <laughs> and carry the unconscious monster back to their mother's castle. 
yet another descendant of the monster's creator, this time Baroness Victoria Frankenstein, the great-granddaughter of Victor. And uh, that's where this whole issue and series ends, right there, like that, boom. <laughs> you can't have a Frankenstein not living in a castle, Steve. I'd question that other uh, Veronica. Was she? Well, it was a chateau. She needs a castle. <laughs> But, I mean, for the series, for the most part, I pretty much enjoyed the art, except for maybe yeah. the, the Coletta inks. Um, but uh, I thought it was a pretty good journey. I like that beyond the townsfolk with pitchforks and lightly armed militia and stuff, we got to see the Frankenstein monster put up against uh, a grizzly bear. <laughs> <laughs> a werewolf giant spider dracula ivan the big hunchback guy the jigsaw monster that berserker robot and these feisty little forest homunculi guys yeah oh, it was a cool they he mixed it up and he had plenty of cunning too like i said that iron will of his made him a fun protagonist to follow around now did you see what i dropped for you steve yeah. i mentioned his iron will Yes, well, coming coming right up. But at the same time as this finale, in June 75, the monster also appeared in two issues of Marvel Team-Up, issues 36 and 37, that were written by Jerry Conway, with no connection to Mantlo's direction at all. Even though we do get the monster giving um, Spider-Man his history, including all the way up to, like, the icon stuff, icon attacking. But the story didn't stop there in 75. The following year in 1976, Marvel's German publisher attempted to continue Mantlo's story with at least another 10 issues. The latter issues reprinting the Monster Unleashed material written by uh, Harmut Huff and art by Leopold Sanchez. I haven't seen it reprinted anywhere and couldn't find it online, but it happened. Wow, there's a lost story. But in the States, it was writer Bill Mantlo himself that revisited this material in Iron Man 101 and 102 in the spring of 1977 with art by George Tusca and inks by Esposito and Pablo Marcos. Tusca makes a nice Iron Man, can I say? Always. I like I like yeah. the, the Iron Man. I was never, you know, it, it works for me. You know, as a kid, I was probably more. We all grew up in the Bob Layton era for his yeah. iconic one. But man, I like this Iron Man. And I like that they, for issue 101, they imported the Frankenstein monster artist Val Mayrick to do the cover with inks by Dave Cockrum. I think it's a great cover with Iron Man held in chains by the monster, and then all the little homunculi guys are beating on his armor with clubs and stuff. So in this tale, Iron Man's leaving China after taking down the Mandarin in issue 100, and he gets shot down over Yugoslavia. And their militia is so happy, too, because they think they just brought down like a commie plane. And he crashes at the foot of the Swiss Alps and is recovered by the Children of the Damned, those little homunculi guys. Seems like a friendly name for him. <laughs> and the Frankenstein monster is there, too, talking like, mother will know what to do with him 
But when Iron Man wakes and lashes out, I mean, the monster beats the crud out of him. I mean, really pounds away at him. It's so well depicted by Tusca and Esposito. I'm just seeing Tony's head ringing inside that helmet. <laughs> I always like the Iron Man's low on juice storyline or whatever. Like, uh, my heart's in trouble or what. And this is another one like, oh, I need to, you know, plug in somewhere. My batteries at 12 percent so they can make it not look like he's a total get beat by frankenstein iron man tries to hold them off but and the monster says the mistress mother has been imprisoned by the other and who's the other it's an armored lance wielding dude riding a demon horse it's the first appearance of the dread knight kevin oh how about that he showed up in thunderbolts Great, great figure design, by the way. Can we just revel in the skull helmet with wings yep. and the classic 70s chain mail? Ain't no, yeah, uh, nice. someone's drawn all them little rings, kids. Ain't no uh, <laughs> Photoshop button to fill <laughs> those things in. <laughs> Maybe you could figure out, Steve, some kind of zip to apply to it or something. Right. Issue 102 has another great cover, too. This one with Iron Man fighting the Dread Knight by George Perez and Pablo Marcos. Yeah, this is an early Iron Man back issue I have because I was like, oh, like you find some old comic and like some dusty bin somewhere and you're just like, well, this looks fine enough. Yeah, Perez cover. Woohoo. The issue opens with the Dread Knight defeating both the monster and Iron Man, much to the dismay of the little homunculi guys and without getting into the weeds of the subplots that are brewing in this title that don't relate to frankenstein's monster there is this cool scene with corporate espionage going on and jasper stillwell and a car chase that get gets witnessed by jack hart who would become a regular during mantlow's run on the book and later become the jack of hearts up oh, there's andrew's ride <laughs> uh, excuse me, guys. Uh, Tony sent me a helicopter. <laughs> but that was cool seeing the Jack Jack of Hearts thing in there. I'm like, I didn't know that he was around in this book during Mantlo's run. But uh, even though I knew Jack of Hearts was a Mantlo character, I only thought of him in in those black and white Marvel magazines and then being brought into the Marvel Universe and having all those guest appearances. But I got to go back and read some of this stuff, I think. Yeah, I think he appeared on a, a cover in like a few issues or something, because I think I have that issue, too. So meanwhile, Iron Man is chained up with the monster and Victoria von Frankenstein, and she tells him Dread Knight's origin story, that he was a gifted Latvian technician. But his desire to impress a girl included apparently doing it on Doom's desk while talking trash about him. And Doom punishes him by grafting a helmet to his face. It's a cool one, but not if you want to eat anything. Such a Doom move, right? That type of, <laughs> it also reminds me of like other characters that have other things attached to their faces permanently. Would have been funny, you're right, Stephen, if he put some really stupid-looking helmet wedged to his face forever, <laughs> and he had to deal with that as his uh, punishment forever. 
But and then he like he's smart. Like he builds his own lance weapon and everything. Yeah, he gets found in the woods by these children of the damned and he gets brought to the castle and he takes over the castle after building his weapon and stuff. And they found the original Black Knight's missing horse and accidentally mutated it into this current hell horse form. Accidentally. The Dread Knight comes into the dungeon there and tortures victoria for her great-grandfather's secrets and it drives the monster into a frenzy and he breaks free and in the scuffle with the dread knight iron man gets freed too then the battle moves outside to the skies with iron man and dread knight doing aerial battle iron man shoots him down and saves victoria while the monster kicks the Dread Knight off a ledge and lands on his head. It did make me wonder. Like, he's like a lab technician. So did he practice fighting on a flying horse? Like, I don't think that's an intuitive thing. Like, <laughs> that's a whole new skill set. Unless the lab tech classes in Latveri are a lot different than what I'm thinking about. Which is one of those ones where you're like... It, I think you'd want to get the hang on that. I don't think that if the video game joust taught me anything, Steve, it's hard getting those things up and yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to stay higher than the other one and land on top, too. Boop. Iron Man leaves as the issue ends with the seriously injured Dread Knight being tended to by the monster and Victoria and her little helpers. Really weird stuff. All right. One more. Fast forward almost 15 years to Doctor Strange, Sorcerer Supreme, number 37 in November 1991, written by Roy and Dan Thomas and R.J. Law Officer, with Jeff Isherwood art. Yeah, you can't series. read Frankenstein on this cover either. <laughs> I, I went and busted out I, I for once. I thought I had the wrong omnibus for those other doctor strange issues but i got the right one for this issue oh you so got I this one it out. Me too. And it's weird how like everything is oversized but the cover isn't like they have a border around it and i'm like what's the story on that yeah to differentiate it as an end piece from the other i don't know i think all I... the trade dress and the dollar fifty and the number 37 and all that would include me, but it was just a weird. I like when I am flipping through a trade or a collection or something like that. And they make the um, uh, cover page be, have a different border. Cause I can sort of from the side of the pages of the side of the whole book, sort of see where the issue breaks are. And if I know I got to go up like, I'll crack up with the omnibus and see I'm at issue 42 or realize I got to go back five issues and I can sort of go back five dividers. You know what I mean? Anyway, I can see that. So in this issue, Strange gets attacked by a silver surfer doppelganger. Oh, I think you mean a Franken surfer as the title of the story. (laughs) (laughs) He traces the source to Frankenstein family history And we get a really great synopsis of the monster's story to date. And And before, like way even before the month, like the family history way back when lovingly and violently rendered. 
and like imagine you're to... you're coming on to a book and you're like yeah now you're gonna have to do this long like family history and all these flashbacks and everything we'll we'll get back to dr strange eventually that's why they brought in the officer to do the history part but i like how they tied it into like saint george's history and i thought that was all cool but ludwig von frankenstein and his assistant borgo had created a Silver Surfer clone back in Silver Surfer issue seven, way back in the sixties. And they all supposedly died. Strange travels to meet Victoria von Frankenstein, and she's still got her little children of the damned all around her and everything. And she further explains that Borgo lives. He didn't die. And the monster years ago moved on. And continued his travels. Borgo, though, he extended his life by inserting his consciousness into the fake surfer, who then Doc has to fight. So it's a cool bookend to Silver Surfer number seven. And the monster actually never appears again, because uh, he, he didn't really appear in this issue other than in the flashbacks. He doesn't show up again until issue one i think it was or at least in the four issue bloodstone limited series in 2001 that was written by abnett and lanning with art by mike lopez and scott Hanna. and in here that's the first uh, introduction of elsa bloodstone right so as the story goes from there Frankenstein wandered or the Frankenstein's monster, I should say, wandered um, from Victoria's uh, castle and befriended uh, Ulysses Bloodstone, who really only a few stories was ever told about. He was such a minor character. So there was a lot of untold history where he was supposedly operating and they went on many adventures together and he became ulysses bloodstone's like right hand man named adam and became like the um uh, like caretaker of his estate and his house and everything so um after ulysses death which is where where this story goes in this bloodstone limited series adam appears to Elsa and gives her her heritage, which is the Bloodstone um, Joker and uh, her costume and everything and like trains her and then is her guide um, moving forward as she becomes a monster hunter and assumes her father's role. The other appearance, I was going to say, the the other appearances of the monster where you've seen him, like in Howling Commandos and all that stuff, those are all clones of the monster, supposedly. But that's that was his that that's where his story finishes is as Adam. Kind of cool. Yeah, I I had there was something. Okay, so Roy Thomas writes this Sorcerer Supreme thing and sides this weird in the history, a certain grim puritan adventurer kills one of the dragons and i'm like boy that sounds an awful lot like he loves howard adaptations and in marvel premiere 33 and 34 he did a solomon kane but i'm like <laughs> solomon kane like i'm not an expert i read a bunch of the howard i don't think he ever fought a dragon so i was well, trying I- to be like is this like a stealth 
he's putting Solomon Kane because it would be the same time frame. It's just that the stories I read don't have him ever killing a dragon. And certainly the art team did not get the message of what Solomon Kane would look like from this character. It was just weird because he doesn't name like everyone else gets a name and he gets that kind of sly comment. Yeah. And I'm like, is this a, is this a weird uh, Solomon Kane tie in? I thought it was the St. George connection. Oh, St. George is the first one, though. He directly oh. says the first guy that kills the dragon is St. George. The second guy is this Puritan. And Puritan, that's the big thing about Sol- sure. uh, Solomon Cain. But like I said, I, I'm not familiar with the Howard story of him killing a dragon. But I know that um, Roy loved and already adapted yeah. some Solomon Cain right. in Marvel premiere. So it makes sense, but it was just one of those weird, like, is this one of his funny little in-jokes that I'm, or am I, because I couldn't think of any other character that would describe, and I know you wouldn't want to necessarily put his name in the 90s, I'm sure they didn't have the rights to to Solomon Kane at that point, right. so, and you know yeah. how these writers love putting little sly nods in. For sure. Kevin, what do you think, kid? this was a lot of bronze age nonsense that got tied up tied up tidied up in the 90s yeah i mean i i don't think it's as legendary as like like godzilla or something like that oh no 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 so agree i mean if you're really into like frankenstein and frankenstein's monster and all that like it's a good uh side diversion there and it has a place in Marvel's history, right? Like the monster existed in Marvel's history for a while there and interacted with some of the other Bronze Age characters and was part of the formation of the Dread Knight there. And the, it kind of it was just funny to see how his different appearances uh, fit together. For me, at least. Because as a kid in the 70s, you know, I saw the Marvel team up issues. I saw the Avengers appearance. I saw these different things. But, it, it, you know, with Frankenstein's Frankenstein. He, he he comes from out of nowhere at any time, as far as I was concerned. Um, but to have there have been a kind of editorial uh, narrative of his uh, existence in the Marvel world um, or not. But the writers who made an effort to try to make it so, that's always fun. Yeah, I had some good stuff. I feel it just suffered from that 70s Bronze Age thing where they'll just radically shift the status quo at a moment's notice with no respect for what came before (laughs) or during the process. Like I said, that modern shift, I just wish they didn't make it so circuitous. Just put them in the modern time. Like, don't give us an unsatisfactory, long, drawn-out backstory thing. Just drop them in the modern time and start telling the good (laughs) stories. That's what made made Plue get off the book, though, I think, was knowing that he was going to be brought into the modern time. So we wouldn't have got Plue. <laughs> oh, yeah. The life and times of Frankenstein's monster. Maybe not up there with Scrooge McDuck, but I dug it. So an even more fractured version of a already fractured adaptation of Shelley's novel was done in the power records series in the seventies. So we're going to end the show with a uh, treat of um, portions of the first few 
issues of this mag um, done power record style. At the sound of the monster, turn the page. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Have a enjoyable Halloween. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. Until the Frankenstein monster and Adam Warlock arm wrestle. Make mine marvel. Later. Power Records presents The Monster of Frankenstein. A solitary figure climbed higher and higher. Finally, his legs grew weary, and he sought refuge in a cave. There, Victor Frankenstein began to search his mind for an answer to a terrifying problem. How had his experiment for the betterment of all mankind gone awry? Why? He had created a monster, and his creation had to be destroyed. But as he sat, he failed to notice another sinister presence at the mouth of the cave, until it was too late, far too late. You! Yes, and for your crime against nature, Victor Frankenstein, you must die! No! Animals fear fire, and so should you! If only I could reach my gun! First you burn me, then you shoot me! Good Lord! The bullet barely faced him! Don't! Please! Let me explain! Explain? How will you explain, Frankenstein? Look at me, at what I am. No, there will be no explanation, save for mine. And when I have finished, you will pay with your life. But for us, there must be an explanation of how all this came to be. How did Victor Frankenstein come to create the monster who now terrified him? He came from a wealthy family, and they were all there to bid him farewell. His fiancée, Elizabeth, his younger brother, William, his father, and his best friend, Clerval. I shall miss you, dearest Elizabeth. Take care and Godspeed. Study hard, dear Victor. Gentlemen, the coach is packed and ready. And so the aspiring young scientist left for the University of Geneva. Victor will do well if his ambition doesn't block his path. Frankenstein did well indeed. Your work is outstanding, my boy. And today we begin the dissection of human cadavers. With each lesson, Frankenstein became more and more impatient to delve ever deeper into the mysteries of the human body. By the end of his third year, he was prepared to embark upon the darkest voyage into the unknown in the history of mankind. Any place that harbored an undamaged corpse became the haunt of a possessed Victor Frankenstein. Night after night, he dragged his grisly loot to his secluded laboratory, until at last his project neared completion. I've worked nearly six months, but if I succeed, as I know I must, I will have created human life from that which was dead and bridged the final gap which leads to immortality. There, the final injection. Now, I can only wait and wait and wait. It's not moving, not even breathing. Live, blast you, live! Frankenstein stared at the monster's lifeless form. Then, overcome with disappointment, he turned back to his notes. My God! It's alive! Am I dreaming? No, it's true! I've created a living being from various parts of the dead. I'll be famous! I'll... Wait, it's rising, walking toward me, staring at me. Those eyes, those horrible glowing yellow eyes, filled with hatred, hatred of me! Ah! No! Stay away! I created you! 
Do you hear? You must obey me. But the creature would not obey. It continued to advance on its creator until in total panic, Frankenstein fled in mortal fear of the thing he himself had created. Trembling, the exhausted doctor fell into a deep, fitful sleep. Hours later, sensing an unseen presence, he bolted upright to see the creature hovering menacingly over his bed. Paralyzed with fright, Frankenstein watched his creation as it gestured toward him, and he knew this monstrosity must be destroyed. Desperate, the doctor lashed out. Get away from me! You hear? Keep back! But the velocity of the chair striking the creature's rock-hard skin was like a matchstick striking a boulder, and far more serious. Frankenstein had established himself as the creature's enemy. Nothing phases the creature. Have to get away! Escape! And so Frankenstein ran for his life. He fled into the rain-swept darkness, his fear too great to allow him to stop. But finally the body overcame the mind, and he collapsed on the cold, wet earth. As dawn stole across the lawn where he rested... Victor! In heaven's name, what are you doing here? Open your eyes, man! Clerval! Oh, thank God you're here! Clerval took his delirious friend to his own hotel room, where he hovered between life and death for many weeks. It has been a long ordeal, Victor. But the crisis has passed. Therefore, much as it grieves me, my first words to you must be those of greatest sorrow. My friend, your younger brother, William, he's been murdered, and your father's young ward, Justine Moritz, has been charged. William, dead? And poor Justine? Good Lord, I must go to father. The journey back to Geneva was long and painful for Victor Frankenstein. Could the monster, and not poor Justine, have murdered William in an act of revenge? Even in the arms of his beloved Elizabeth, he found it impossible to erase the creature from his thoughts. I can't believe Justine guilty. It is difficult for all of us, Victor. But the facts. She was found clutching William's pendant only a few feet from where he was murdered. Tell me, Father, is it not possible the murderer placed the pendant in Justine's grasp while she slept? What sort of being could commit so heinous a crime than blame it on an innocent girl? And even as his father asked the question, Frankenstein knew the answer. I knew it! Was certain of it! And now my most terrible suspicions are confirmed. The creature lives and seeks revenge! But I must stop him! I must! What is it, Victor? Why did you bolt from the roof? I saw someone peering in the window. But these tracks show that he got away. When... When will Justine be hanged, Father? Tomorrow, I believe. There's no hope for her. And so Justine Moritz was hanged, died at the age of 21 for a crime she did not commit before the glazed eyes of a tortured Victor Frankenstein. The monster had laid his trap perfectly, and two innocent people now lay dead. The next morning, Frankenstein packed and departed into the mountains, in hope that the jagged peaks would grant him refuge from the horrors of the world below. But the very monster he dreaded, having followed him, now confronted Victor Frankenstein in his mountain refuge. Listen to me, Victor Frankenstein. You constructed my body piece by piece, created me against all the laws of God and man, gave me life only no! to... No! No! Desert me, leave me alone and helpless. Please believe me. I didn't know what I was doing when I created you. But you did create me, and survive I did. For days I wandered through the dense forests. It would have been easy for me to collapse and die, but I refused. Finally, on the tenth day, fate intervened. 
A huge bear came out of a thicket toward me. Weak with hunger, but strong with the desire to live, I fought him, and in the end it was I who survived. Yes, I survived. Finally, food. It gave me the strength I needed. Deeper and deeper into the mountains I trudged. The loneliness became far more difficult to bear than the mere pangs of hunger. Then one day, I came upon a small cottage in the clearing, and I prayed it would be my salvation. For several days, I hid at the edge of the forest and watched its inhabitants. A blind old man and his daughter and son-in-law. I watched, observed, and learned. The three people became my friends, though of course they did not know of my presence. Oh, how I yearned to go to them, to tell them I was their friend. But it was impossible. I remained hidden, watching and listening, gradually beginning to learn the basics of their language. The winter passed slowly, but my learning process continued. Under cover of darkness, I did chores for them. I don't understand, Father. Who would do this for us, and why? Such good fortune is not for us to question, my son. Finally, as the snows began to melt, I watched the couple bid the old man farewell. We will return within a week, Father. Will you be all right here, alone? But of course, my dear. Have a good trip, and do not worry about me. This was the opportunity I'd waited for, the chance to make a friend. The old man was blind. I argued with myself, so he'd have no reason to fear me. But as I struggled to make a fateful decision, fate herself, in the form of a starving, salivating wolf, made my decision for me. Without the slightest hesitation, I bolted from my shelter and ran toward the house. The snarling beast crashed through the window. I've never known such anguish. Only a few yards away, a frail, sightless old man was fighting for his very life. And if he lost, then so would I. When I reached the cabin door, I discovered the door was locked. Summoning all the strength that remained within me, I prepared for one final assault. The door gave way. I rushed toward the bloodthirsty creature and pulled it from my friend, snapping its wretched neck in the same swift motion. I turned to the moaning, bleeding old man and prayed that his life would be spared. For three days I sat vigil with him, treating his wounds and begging him to live. Then, miraculously, on the fourth day, he spoke. Who are you? I have sensed your presence, noticed your kindness to me. But up to now I've been too weak to say thank you. My eyes filled with tears of gladness as the old man talked. At last I had made a friend, at least until the others returned. You are kind. The next two days were the happiest of my miserable life. We talked, we became close, but I knew it was too good to last. Tomorrow my family will arrive, and I can hardly wait for them to meet you, my friend. I froze at the very thought of their return. Early the next morning, they came. By the saints! What sort of thing is that? In the cottage with your father? Stay here, my love, and pray that I am not too late to save him. Get away from him! He's just a blind old man! No! Wait! You do not understand! I am... 
There was no reasoning with him. His eyes were glazed with disgust and hatred as he advanced on me with the axe. I wanted to scream out, to explain to them, but there was no time. Kill it! In God's name, someone help us kill it! I fled, her words ringing in my ears as I ran into the forest. Kill it! Kill it! Not him, but it! Once more I was alone, totally alone, and in that brief instant, I learned the meaning of the word hate. Yes, hate, Victor Frankenstein. And in that moment of my greatest despair, it was upon you that I swore vengeance. You, who are the cause of all my pain and grief, of all my loneliness. At last, I've found you, Frankenstein. And now, you die. Go ahead, kill me. I deserve no better fate. You want to die? Then I will make you live, live and suffer as I have. Slowly, almost gently, the monster let his creator slide to the stone floor. Then, as Frankenstein wept uncontrollably, the monster once again spoke. Farewell, Dr. Frankenstein. When you are feeling sorry for yourself, for the grief you have known and will know, remember what I have suffered has been a thousand times greater. It was a shaken Victor Frankenstein who arrived back in Geneva, only to find that the monster's threats were all true. Not only had his best friend Clerval died under mysterious circumstances, but even more grievous news awaited him. Elizabeth's been murdered. And your father, I'm afraid he's dying. And so the old man was. The news of Elizabeth's death had been too much for him. His father, Clerval, Elizabeth, all dead. It was more than the grief-stricken Victor could bear. Shortly after the funeral, he was placed in an asylum for an indefinite period of time. After several months, he gained his release. You have progressed, Victor. I only pray this obsession will not yet destroy you. It will not, Doctor. It will only destroy the thing which nearly destroyed me. And so Victor Frankenstein set forth to find and destroy the monster he had created. Now the lust for revenge was his, and it consumed and possessed him completely. More than a month passed without so much as a trace of his quarry, until finally he saw something move far in the distance. At last the trail had grown warm. His burning lust for revenge pushed him to and beyond the limit where normal men would fall. The end was drawing ever closer. He found footprints, footprints which could only have been left by the monster he saw. A final burst of strength coursed through him. He was close now, closer than he'd ever been. Suddenly, the two adversaries caught sight of one another. The shell of the man who was Victor Frankenstein advanced. Now, cursed beast, revenge will be mine. The air was split by a sharp cracking sound, the sound of an icebreak. The deadly gaping jaws had opened wide. In an instant, the monster was engulfed by the icy black waters of the Arctic. Down he plummeted. The end was at hand. In a way, Victor Frankenstein had been cheated of his final satisfaction. But perhaps it was only right that such a creature should die at nature's hand, for its very existence had been an affront to her sovereignty. Death did not come easily. He battled her grim assault for as long as his lungs would allow. But in the end, he sucked the freezing salty waters inward, and peace at last was his.